Open your Bibles, please, if you'd like. No pressure. James chapter 2, we're going to look at verses 14 through 26 this morning. James chapter 2, beginning in verse 14. The topic, if you say that you have saving faith, James says, show me by helping your destitute brother or sister rather than sending them away hungry. Title of our message, show me, don't play. (laughs) Or, for those of you who are older, the greatest show on earth. How's that? Is that better? All right, thank you. I knew I'd have to have multiple titles this morning. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, uh, once again, James, he just comes right at us, Lord. But he does it because he loves us. And you love us, and we thank you for that. We want to know all that we can know, Lord, from this text. So that we're understanding your compassion, your grace, your mercy towards us, and then ours towards others. And so help us work through it, we pray in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. Each of the states in the U.S. has an official slogan to encourage tourism. They're often printed on license plates. We're familiar with many of them. Florida is the sunshine state. Montana is big sky country. New Mexico is the land of enchantment. Virginia is for lovers. The writers over at Comedy Central have suggested some unofficial state slogans. Arkansas, literacy ain't easy. (laughs) Hawaii, hakatiki mau sha'ami liki toru which translated is death to mainlanders, but leave your money. (laughs) Kentucky, five million people, seven last names. (laughs) North Carolina, tobacco is a vegetable. And Rhode Island, we're not really an island. Now, if I asked you seriously, which state is the show me state, I bet most of you know it's Missouri. There are several stories concerning the origin of the show me slogan. The most widely known story gives credit to U.S. Congressman Willard Duncan Vandiver for coining the phrase in 1899. During a speech in Philadelphia, he said this, I come from a state that raises corn and cotton and cockleburs and Democrats and frothy eloquence neither convinces nor satisfies me. I'm from Missouri. You've got to show me. And I suppose it needs to be updated to read Republican since Missouri was a hugely red state in the recent presidential election. In the Bible, James is the show me preacher. In our verses, he says, show me your faith without your works. I will show you my faith by my works. You simply cannot show faith without works. Genuine faith works. I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Show me your faith by serving others. And number two, show me your faith by showing Jesus. Let's take a look, first of all, in verses 14 through 17, showing our faith by serving others. On the day of Pentecost, Peter preached the gospel. 3,000 Jews received Jesus Christ as their Savior. Not long after, another 5,000 were saved at once. We read, too, that men and women were being saved on a daily basis as ordinary believers shared the gospel one-on-one. A majority of these new converts had traveled from all over the Roman Empire to attend the annual feast. 
After getting saved, they lingered in Jerusalem, wanting to learn as much as they could about Jesus directly from the twelve. Local Jews opened up their homes and showered hospitality upon them. In the book of Acts, we read this. This is from Acts chapter 4. Now the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. Eventually, the majority of these visiting believers returned to their own homes outside Jerusalem and Judea, to their regular lives, regular occupations, and to their established synagogues. It wasn't too long before waves of severe persecution hit the believers in Jerusalem. Many Jerusalem Jews were forced away from their homes and occupations out into those Gentile territories. Most were already poor, but fleeing from persecution meant leaving everything behind. They were effectively refugees. If you were a Messianic Jew who had been forced out of your home, dispersed out into Gentile territory, where would you seek help? Well, that's right, from the existing Messianic Jewish communities in those Gentile territories, from Messianic Jews who just maybe you had shown hospitality to years earlier after they were saved and hung around Jerusalem to learn about the Lord. Evidently, at least some of the more settled Jews were not given to showing them hospitality. Seeing their brothers and sisters in great need, they pronounced a blessing upon them but sent them away without helping them. James was not happy about it. And so in verse 14, he says, What does it profit, brethren, if someone say he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? Now, many of you know that this section of James's letter has caused all sorts of theological confusion. We like to say that salvation is by grace through faith plus nothing. James seems to say, and I emphasize the word seems, that salvation is by grace through faith plus works. You may have heard that the reformer, Martin Luther, rejected the book of James on account of this faith works dilemma, that he thought it was in conflict with the writings of the apostle Paul. Truth is, Luther vacillated on the book of James. Lutherans after him offer the following analysis. They say this, Paul was dealing with one kind of error, while James was dealing with a different error. The errorists Paul was dealing with were people who said that works of the law were needed to be added to faith in order to help earn God's favor. Paul countered this error by pointing out that salvation was by faith alone apart from deeds of the law. Like James, Paul also taught that saving faith is not dead but alive, showing thanks to God in deeds of love. James was dealing with errorists who said that if they had faith, they didn't need to show love by a life of faith. James countered this error by teaching that faith is alive, showing itself to be so by deeds of love. Now, perhaps an alternate translation of verse 14 would help. The ISV has it, what good does it do, my brothers, if someone claims to have faith but does not prove it with actions? This kind of faith cannot save him, can it? The kind of faith that produces absolutely no spiritual changes in a person's life, or worse, the person acts contrary to Christian character, that kind of faith isn't saving faith. James and Paul both teach that salvation is by faith alone, and also that saving faith is never alone, but shows itself to be alive by deeds of love that express a believer's thanks to God for the free gift of salvation by faith in Jesus. And so in verse 15... 
If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? I think this is more than a hypothetical case, more than an illustration. Given the scenario I laid out earlier with regards to Jews being scattered by persecution, I think this was happening in real time. Jews recently forced to flee Jerusalem were ending up in the synagogues of settled Jews already dispersed throughout the empire. In the opening verses of chapter 2, James introduced a situation in which a poor man in filthy clothes came into their assembly. Doesn't it sound like he is continuing that illustration by picking up where he left off with the treatment of that poor man? Naked is a translation of a word that can mean without adequate clothing. Doesn't necessarily mean you're nude. It means your clothing is inadequate. Driven out of Jerusalem by persecution, it wasn't long before your clothing would be soiled at the least and eventually tattered. It wasn't long before you'd run out of money for daily necessities. The poor man in filthy clothes wasn't initially treated badly. He was invited in to stand or sit during the service. The rich man was given preferential treatment, but the poor man wasn't turned away. He was treated like everyone else. Afterward, however, he was being sent on his way with only a blessing. They ended their service with the doxology, and then they sent the poor man off without helping him. What does it profit can be translated, your words are worthless. To put it in our own slang, James was telling them, you need to put your money where your mouth is. You say you're a Christian, how do you send away the naked destitute brother? James had also in the previous verses talked about loving your neighbor as yourself. It would have evoked thoughts about Jesus' teaching on the Good Samaritan because it was in response to the question, who is my neighbor, that Jesus told that story. The Samaritan stopped to help the robbed and beaten Jewish stranger, getting him to safety and providing for his physical needs for some days afterwards. Yet here these Jews were turning away one of their own, dismissing him or her with a blessing wasn't really an option. And so verse 17, thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Now, if this sounds harsh, we're forgetting something Jesus said. It's a rather long passage. Bear with me as I read it. You'll recognize it immediately, but it bears reading this morning. It's from Matthew 25. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you a drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, assuredly I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. And then he will also say to those on the left hand, depart from me, you cursed into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not take me in. 
naked, you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. James wasn't the only one who thought that saving faith was shown by works. Jesus says the same thing at the end of the age. It was one thing for the Jerusalem Jews to show hospitality for the converts at and after the day of Pentecost. It was all excitement and revival and miracles, and everybody was in a, for lack of a better term, good mood. Now, a decade and a half later, those Jerusalem Jews were targets of severe persecution. The persecution hadn't reached the outlying areas, but if you helped a refugee, that might cast suspicion on you. It was dangerous, and the local Jews were ignoring the need. And so they were pronouncing a blessing on these, saying, hey, you're welcome in the synagogue, but we've got nothing for you. Be warmed and filled. Now, I've expanded this beyond helping the naked and destitute to say that you show your faith by serving others. And I think that's a a valid application. There is a way of showing your faith, and it is by serving others. And all James is saying is that it's the natural outflow of the Christian life to have compassion upon and to serve others. And if you're not a person that has compassion and you don't serve others in any way, then your faith has to be suspect because... It's the nature of faith. And so take inventory of ministering to others. Is your faith, is my faith working? That's what James is asking. The remaining verses, he says, show me your faith by showing Jesus. People almost universally think that having a job description is essential to success in the workplace. I'll tell you one place where I've seen having a job description be detrimental, and that's in the church. Let me give an example. There are many, but here's one. Christians have a tendency to think in terms of the gift or the gifts of the Spirit that they have been given. And that's great. You should stir up the gift or gifts God has given you and use them to serve others. Uh, You're familiar with the gifts of the Spirit and uh, how each of you is gifted and how you most of the time minister within the body of Christ. However, none of that is an excuse to forego serving because what is needed is not in your area of gifting. And so if there's some sort of a need or some sort of a job that needs to be done, uh, and you think, well, I I don't really have that gift, so I'm just going to pass on that, uh, that is a poor use of job description, I would say. And I think this is part of the background for the confrontation in verse 18, because James says, someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. So this objector says of James that, James, you have works, I have faith. And so he's making a differentiation. He's saying, you you don't put that on me. You're the one who has the gift of works. And so go ahead and take care of that, brother. I just have the gift of faith. 
We might say then that the two men are gifted differently so that one has the gift of faith but not the gift of works and vice versa. The implication is that the person with faith has no obligation to help the needy because it's not in their spiritual job description. Here's a needy brother. I have the gift of faith. So I'm gonna pronounce a blessing upon you and hopefully somebody with the gift of works will take over where I left off. They might even go so far as to say that pronouncing a blessing over the needy brother or sister is all that God wants them to do because of the way they're gifted. James wants his readers to know he isn't talking about their gifts. He's talking about something far more basic. Every believer who has saving faith must show it by his or her works in whatever way is needed at the time. He challenges believers to show me faith and he says you can't do it without works. And so verse 19, you believe that there is one God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. Now this is interesting. All Jews, whether they're saved or not, believe that there is one God. Judaism is a monotheistic religion. As part of the practice of Judaism, Jews each day would repeat these words from the book of Deuteronomy. This is Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. James' audience were men and women who had recited that creed every day of their lives. Then one day, they were exposed to the gospel. Their eyes were open to see that Jesus was and is God. They were saved. They were born again. Their lives were radically transformed from within as they were filled with God the Holy Spirit. Old things passed away. All things became new. And so in verse 19, I see James reminding them of where they'd come from. As Jews, before Jesus, they believed in one God but they didn't know that one God. They weren't saved. Many of us come from a religious tradition, a Protestant or a Catholic tradition, where we would have been able to recite and did recite creeds. And if you said, you know, do you believe in God? Yes, I believe in God. Is, is there just one God or are there many gods? No, there's one God. And we would even go so far as to say he's one God expressed in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. When I was a little Catholic boy, I had orthodox faith. But I was on my way to hell until I got saved. And so that's what James is saying. He says, you, you, there's, a, there's a way of believing creeds and and truth that isn't saving and you guys know that because you got saved in Jerusalem during a time of revival and you know the difference between being a Jew and being a Christian a Jew or a Gentile who believes in one God needs to believe that it's Jesus now James pointed out that even demons believe in one God they tremble at the reality of being consigned eternally to the lake of fire. A Jew or a Gentile who believes in one God but is not born again will share the same fate as a demon. That's humbling and and powerful. Do you realize that? Demons believe in God. In fact, they have a better belief in God than than most human beings because they, they, they recognize Jesus when he was on earth. Even though he was veiled, 
in human flesh, they knew he was the sinless son of God. And they were terrified. And he commanded them. And they did what he told them to do. And so what James is saying, not so subtly, is that a person who's not born again is going to share in the fate of demons. And that is to be cast alive into the lake of fire. If you're not saved this morning, that's your eternal destiny. God had saved them from that fate for good works. They go hand in hand. And so verse 20, do you want to know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? Do you want to know means, are you willing to learn? James wants to show them from their own scriptures that saving faith has always shown itself by works among the heroes and the heroines of faith. And so verse 21, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac, his son, on the altar? Abraham, of course, the physical father of the Jewish nation, He was and is the spiritual father of all those who are saved, Jew and Gentile alike. His greatest test of faith was God asking him to offer his son Isaac as a sacrifice. You remember the story, Abraham never hesitated. He started off first thing in the morning at first light and he had a focus on getting up that mountain and getting that sacrifice done as soon as possible. Do you see, James says, that faith was working together with his works, and by works, faith was made perfect. Now, I'm sure that in synagogue school, the average Jew had been told that story a gazillion times, over and over and over again, which, by the way, that's, that's how Sunday school or synagogue school, in their case, should be conducted. You should hear the same stories from the Bible over and over in a deeper way each time based on your age level. A lot of times, I'm really proud of our Sunday school and our uh, children's ministry because a lot of times people, they, they think, man, you know, you've heard that story. How many times can we tell this story? And they branch out into all this weird stuff that isn't really biblical. And I'll tell you what your kids need to know is what the Bible says. And each time a little bit deeper and with a little bit more knowledge. And so these guys, especially the story of Abraham, I mean, this is like something you heard all the time as a Jew. And each time they understood that Abraham's obedience showed them what they couldn't see, his faith. So if you, before James uses this as an argument, if you had asked a Jew and said, hey, do you you remember the story of Abraham? Well, of course, he's the father of our faith. And he showed his faith to be perfect when he did his offering of Isaac, you know, and was willing to offer him as a sacrifice. And so they already knew that faith works itself out and that faith can be seen. Verse 23, the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness and he was called the friend of God. William MacDonald has a great take on this. He says, True faith and works are inseparable. The first produces the second, and the second evidences the first. Excuse me. In the offering of Isaac, we see a practical demonstration of the faith of Abraham. It was the practical fulfillment of the scripture which said that Abraham was justified by believing. So verse 24, you see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith only. In Genesis 15, verse 6, we read that Abraham believed on the Lord and God counted it to him for righteousness. 
Abraham was therefore believed, justified, excuse me, by believing. He was justified by faith. Justified means it's just as if he'd never sinned. God declaring him righteous on the basis of his belief. It was not till we come to Genesis 22 that we find Abraham offering up his son. It's then that the Bible says he was justified by his works. And so here's what we're saying. As soon as Abraham believed in the Lord, he was justified in the sight of God. He was saved. He couldn't be any more saved. But then seven chapters later, God put Abraham's faith to the test. Abraham demonstrated to mankind that it was genuine saving faith by his willingness to offer up Isaac. His obedience showed that his faith was not merely a head belief, but a heart commitment. And so it, it's, we struggle over these scriptures as if they're difficult, but they're really very simple, I think. We all recognize that Abraham was a man of faith, the father of our faith, and that he showed it when he went to offer a, a Isaac. He didn't balk. It shows the faith that you can't see that's in his heart. I don't know if a person is saved. And um, a lot of times, I, I told this story not too long ago at a funeral we did recently for a, a Filipino. And when we went to the Philippines, we would encounter these natives and we would say, hey, are you, sa- are you a Christian? Yes. And then we'd say, have you been born again? I don't know what you're talking about. And then you would read from John chapter three where Jesus said, you must be born again. And then we'd say, do you, would you like to be born again? they go, of course we'd like to be born again because that's what Jesus tells us to do. And so, uh, you know, there, there's some action that needs to take place. And then there would be a change in the life. And so uh, James is just pointing out that Abraham was the father of our faith. And you actually see that as he grows in faith and examples his faith. Now, next, he mentions Rahab. Likewise, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out another way? Joshua sent two spies to do recon before attacking Jericho. Their presence became known, and they were being hunted. Rahab the harlot took them in and hid them, effectively committing treason. She protected them, and when she had diverted the search party, she sent them out another way. Another great lesson from synagogue school, which the Jews knew about Rahab's faith. Even though she had very little knowledge of the God of Israel, her faith was shown to be true and genuine by how she acted. You would look at Rahab and say, what is causing her to risk her life in order to help and save and deliver these spies? She must have a true and saving faith in the God of Israel, and she did. How would it have been if Abraham refused to offer Isaac? Uh, what would you think of Abraham? You'd wonder about that guy. You'd think, hey, Abraham, you need to put your money with your mouth. Is You know, you've been going around telling us that you're, you're a man of faith. What would the Jews have thought if Rahab had turned in the spies? Oh, well, I'm a young believer. I don't know any better. There would be no evidence that she was a Christian. He didn't, she didn't, precisely because they had true saving faith that prompted obedience no matter the consequences. Neither of them said, I have faith and don't need the works of obedience that show it. When God said to Abraham, go offer your son, your only son Isaac, he said, I don't need to do that. I've been walking with you pretty tight all these years. You know, you see my heart. I don't, I don't have to do that. I'm not gonna do that. 
just take it on account. He didn't. The Jews turning away their naked and destitute brothers and sisters were understandably afraid of repercussions. What would Abraham have done in their situation? What would Rahab have done? Based on what they did, they would have been helping those Jews. Whether it was actually being verbalized as an excuse to say you have faith and I have works was a lame, non-biblical excuse. And that's really what James is saying in our vernacular, saying you guys are lame. You can't get away with this. I have some doubts about your walk with the Lord if you can turn these individuals out. He says in verse 26, for as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead also. If after pointing this out, a Jew continued to refuse help and hospitality, it might be they were never saved in the first place. This is where it gets tough. If a professing believer doesn't do what is clearly right, they're either unwilling to do it or they're unable to do it. By unable, I mean that they lack the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit and they cannot obey God. We would say they're not saved. We cannot expect a non-believer to do the things that are commanded of a Christian because our walk depends on the leading and the empowering of God the Holy Spirit. And so if somebody is unable to do what we're asking them to do, what God is asking them to do, it's evidence that they're not saved. By unwilling, I mean they choose sin over obedience. And those of us who are Christians, you know you're born again, but we still sin. There are things God has asked you to do and you just, you just say no. And you um, count on God's grace. We're carnal in that way. Now, I can't be sure of their faith in Jesus because I can't see their heart. But I can raise the concern that they are not saved because faith without works of obedience is dead. And so again, we're very careful. I'm not, I, I'm not the person, you're not the person to sit in judgment over somebody's faith. But if somebody keeps going in, down a path that is disobedient, you start to wonder if they're just unable to do what is right because they're not really saved. And as we saw earlier, it's possible to have an orthodox belief and not have been born again. Demons believe. Many of us, before we came to Christ, believed, but we weren't saved until Jesus saved us when we confessed our sins. He regenerated us and we changed. And so it's a very interesting phenomena. Now, there's something else I want to point out, something in common and marvelous about these two examples that James uses. Abraham and Rahab both show Jesus in their works. It's not just about works. It's about revealing Jesus Christ. As most of you know, Abraham's near sacrifice of Isaac is a picture of God the Father sacrificing his son, Jesus Christ. What Abraham was stopped from doing, God the Father would do centuries later on that same spot. Abraham was therefore showing Jesus. A lot of people, you got to wonder about this, you know, and, and I've heard it criticized before, this whole thing about human sacrifice. I mean, what kind of a God do we serve that he would, you know, have Abraham sacrifice his only son And you can chew on that all you want. You can struggle with it until you step back and you say, this is what God the Father 
is going to do and did do with his son, Jesus Christ. This is to show us what it cost in order to be saved. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. Mankind sin, therefore man must die. And a perfect sinless man can die in our place. And that perfect sinless man is Jesus Christ. And that's what he did on Calvary, which was the exact same spot where Abraham nearly sacrificed Isaac. And in the story, you remember when Abraham is going up the mountain with Isaac, Isaac's getting a little bit itchy about the situation. He's maybe 30, 33 years old. I think he's the same age as Jesus to preserve the type. But he says, hey, dad, wood, fire, where's the offering, buddy? And Abraham says something amazing. God will provide himself the lamb. And up on the mountain, just as Abraham was going to sacrifice his son, the angel stayed his hand and there was a ram caught in the thicket. But what Abraham was saying prophetically was that God the Father will provide the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. And so Abraham, this man of faith, showed Jesus through his works. In Hebrews it says he was willing to sacrifice Isaac even though all of the promises that God had made to him were tied up in Isaac and he accounted that God would raise him from the dead if necessary. That's how much faith he had. It's even more faith than just, just the willingness to sacrifice him. He believed God would raise him from the dead. And that's part of the type too because God did raise Jesus Christ from the dead. And so it's a beautiful story. Rahab was promised she'd be delivered from destruction in Jericho. But only if what? She tied a scarlet cord outside her window. As early as the first century... Commentators such as Clement of Rome, Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, Origen, and others saw this scarlet cord as a symbol of the blood of Jesus Christ. She too was showing Jesus in her works. It wasn't just that she saved the spies as good as that was and as wonderful as that was. It was that it was wrapped up with the idea that Jesus Christ was her Lord and Savior. Works must show the world Jesus to have true eternal value. Microsoft founder Bill Gates, he's not only the world's richest person or one of them, he's also one of the most generous. His organization, the Gates Foundation, is dedicated to eradicating diseases and helping the world's most poor, and he's committed to giving away almost his entire fortune. In an interview with Rolling Stone, he revealed that part of the inspiration for helping others is based on religious principles. He told the magazine, and I quote, the moral systems of religion, I think, are super important. We've raised our kids in a religious way. They've gone to the Catholic church that Melinda goes to and I participate in. I've been very lucky and therefore I owe it to try and reduce the inequity in the world. And that's kind of a religious belief. I mean, it's at least a moral belief. Is Bill Gates saved? David Frost asked him, do you believe in the Sermon on the Mount? He said, I don't. I'm not somebody who goes to church on a regular basis. The specific elements of Christianity are not something I'm a huge believer in. Gates is not showing Jesus. While his good works alleviate so much suffering, and we're grateful for it, they don't offer eternal rewards, and they don't warn of eternal punishment. And so the kind of works that we're talking about are works that flow from a heart of compassion and that show Jesus while you are contemplating your faith and its works, remember that you always want to show others Jesus in all that you say and do. Amen?